Good afternoon, guys. It's good to be here with you guys today. Um, it's 1.41, and in about a couple hours, we will be wrapping up. No, 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 no. I'm not saying I'm going to go for a couple hours. <laughs> Talking about around 4 o'clock, we'll be wrapping up this conference. And in a lot of mission conferences, at the end of the last day, the hour before, there will always come that inevitable time where the worship team comes up where the light dims, where we for the young people, especially in the crowd, we, we, we somehow communicate this, this environment or this setting that you are about to make the most important decision in your life post-salvation. Are you going to give your life to missions? We're not going to do that today. Um, I hope you, I mean, obviously you guys knew that, but we're not going to do that today. I mean, obviously for a lot of missionaries, as they think back to their first step taken, they could think, you know what? I, I did pledge myself to give my life to missions in this conference and that conference. But there are many, many, many other people for them that raised hand in that particular conference is the only step that they have ever taken. I have lost count of the many people I've spoken to who would come up to me after a session and say, you know what, when I was in college, I too gave my life to missions. But you know what, they don't have a reason why they never went. Life simply got in the way. Um, I've heard it said a, a, a few times that one out of every hundred hands raised in mission conferences actually make it to the field. Uh, I don't have any real study to back it, you know, to, to, to back what I heard. But looking at my own life, the people that I went to mission conferences with in high school and college, that, that, that number is about pretty, that, that's pretty accurate. I'm the only one I know that actually made it to the mission field. Now, so the reality is the, the majority of those raised hand, they don't make it to the mission field. So we, we need to ask, well, what happened? What can we do differently? What's a good metric to measure mobilization success? Because we know a lot of conferences actually list out the number of decisions as a metric to measure how successful their conference is. But we all know that that's, you know what, based on the number of people not going to the field, those raised hands, we got to find something else to measure if we're mobilizing right. So we have to ask the question, to obey the Great Commission, how does one get from here to there? And who should answer the question? Is it the, is, is, is it the individual? Well, what about the local church? How does one get from here to there? How do we send out competent gospel ambassadors to the field? We all know the shaping and the molding of a competent gospel worker does not happen in the moment in time. That moment of raising your hands in a conference does not make you a competent missionary right there, right then. So when it comes to missions, I want to draw your attention to, we tend to put the spotlight, we tend to put the spotlight on the front end of the journey and the back end of the journey. The front end, I'm talking about the mobilization efforts, the conferences, the, the, the moments that we try to get young people to say yes to missions. That's a front end. And the back end, I'm talking about testimonies of churches being planted, people groups being reached you know, over there. 
But what's missing, what's often missing is this big chunk of time in the middle. This time between saying yes to missions to getting actual testimonies of churches being planted. And without getting more clarity of those time in the middle, we are doing a disservice to the young people that we challenge into missions and also the churches behind them. So the time in the middle is what I want to talk about today. After the moment of decision in response to the Great Commission, how do we get from here to there? And by there, I don't mean just getting to the field. Because anybody with a credit card could get to the field. I mean, you just buy a ticket. That I'm not talking about actually going. I'm talking about how does one, after saying yes to the Great Commission, actually becomes a competent gospel worker. Uh, I want to break um, that, this journey into three stages. Number one, the local church. Number two, training. And also the early years, the early years on the field. Number one, the, the church, the centrality of the local church in everything missions. In a lot of mission conferences, uh, allow me to, I know we're in the missions conference setting, but allow me to come back to the setting. Uh, in a lot of mission conferences, we have the mission speakers up here. And then right outside the auditorium, we have the mission agencies setting up booth and tables, getting ready to send you guys out on trips. But what's glaringly missing is the local church, isn't it? Now, I'm not at all suggesting, please, guys, don't go out after my session, start overturning tables out there. That's not, I'm not suggesting that. But, but I am talking about a lot of times when we ask these young people to say yes to missions, right outside, we have agencies ready to send them out. But a lot of time, what's missing is the local church. It's a local church. They are good, good, good. Again, I believe with all my heart, the place of agencies. There are a lot of good ones, many of whom are here today. But I just want to highlight the fact that a lot of times in a young people's journey to say yes to missions, the local church is often absent in the early stages. And if we were to find any example, any example of this uh, first step, we have to turn to Acts 13, don't we? And there we will see the church front and center in everything missions. We will see the church in Antioch through the prompting of the Holy Spirit. Who, who did the Holy Spirit talk to? The Holy Spirit actually talked to the leadership of the church. It was the leadership of the church that responded to the Great Commission. The Holy Spirit communicated to the leadership and the leadership obeyed. And Acts 13 also said the church laid hands on Paul and Barnabas. Another sign, another symbol of it was the church that initiated the obedience of the Great Commission. What we will not see in Acts 13 is Paul's personal missionary calling. What we will not see is Barnabas' own personal calling. I'm sure Paul and Barnabas, they walked with the Spirit. They were in communion with the Spirit. But in Acts 13, the Scripture placed the focus on the church sending and not on the individual responding. So we must be clear on this. God has entrusted the Great Commission to the local church. 
So when pastors, churches, when you send your young people to mission conferences, when they come back, the first thing they should do is to come, come back to the local church to debrief, to encourage and to be encouraged, to pray, to plan, to share with the local church. Good mission conferences actually encourage this. They facilitate this. They bring missions back to the local church. I had the privilege of participating in the cross conference last year. And, and uh, that was my first time going to the cross conference. And on the first day, I start seeing social media posts. I mean, you guys were all under quarantine. I flew in from overseas for this. But you guys were all quarantined. So, but, but I start seeing media, like social media posts of different churches, viewing parties, people together, churches, pastors, young people, elders, deacons sitting together, receiving the challenge of the Great Commission. That's a good missions conference, guys. Pastors, please vet. They are good conferences, and they're not so good conferences. Send your young people to good mission conferences that put missions back to the local church. Getting from here to there, transforming that raised hand to a competent gospel worker must start with the local church. Now, we start with the local church. Next, we need to see missionaries or missionary candidates who are faithful to their local church before going, before going. Several months ago, um, I was in Taiwan, and I overheard a conversation between an American missionary and a local believing sister. And uh, this sister, this Taiwanese sister, shared with the missionary, and, and what she shared was true, that uh, um, the sister shared that in Taiwan, a lot of times churches aren't mission-minded. So she was having a hard time getting her church to send her out. And the American missionary right away replied, well, you know what? That's not a big problem. Uh, in America, if your own church doesn't want to send you out, you, you just change your church. We have a lot of mission-minded churches that's willing to send people out. And, and guys, I know this is an anecdotal story, but you guys all know this mindset is real. I have had too many conversations um, here in America or overseas in Asia of young people wanting to change their church uh, because the church isn't ready to send them out right now or, or according to their plan. And I tell them 99% of the time, do not do it. Do not make that decision lightly. 99% of the time, stay right there. Before we send somebody out, before somebody can become that competent gospel worker, we need to see faithfulness and commitment to the local church. We need to see that in the lives of missionary candidates. The church is not a tool to achieve somebody's missionary aspirations. It's not a tool that if it doesn't work, you pick up another one and try to see if it works. The church is not a place where you go and simply for the purpose of raise your missionary funds. That's not the place of the church. In Acts 13, the Holy Spirit entrusted the church to send Paul and Barnabas out. So we need to actually examine the missionary candidate. After raising his hand or her hand, is he a, a living member of a local body? Are they serving? Are they growing together? Are they teaching and being teachable at the same time? Are they under the authority and accountability of the church elders? We need to see faithfulness and commitment first. 
If we were to actually look at the Bible, Brooks touched on it a little bit yesterday. If we assume that the work of the missionary is to go overseas to proclaim the gospel and to plant churches, um, we need to go to 1 Timothy 3, the elders' qualification. Um, that would be a good place to start as their qualifications. Now, I have taught this in the room of full of 20-year-olds. And when I tell them, hey, you know what? You need to go to 1 Timothy 3 in order to qualify as a missionary in your church. You know, they'll look at me like, man, I just unplugged their missionary dreams. Uh, um, they something got mad at me for, for suggesting that. And for the simple reason of knowing, hey, you know what? N most churches will not appoint 20-year-old as church elders. I'm not trying at all. I'm not saying at all that we should appoint them officially prior to sending them out but we should use the qualifications of all the of the elder to examine this young person's life is he growing in all these areas is he showing a trajectory toward all these marks of maturity ask yourself as a local church if this young person keeps on growing the way that he is today can you imagine appointing him as an elder 20 30 years later. And if the, if the answer is yes, he's not there yet, but, but, but all the growth trajectory shows that he is growing toward that direction. And if your answer is yes, I would say this is somebody that you can invest in. This is somebody that you can invest in. But if for this young person, there's, there's something in his life where you go, you know what? If he does not grow in this area, we will never appoint this person in any leadership role in our church, now or forever. This is somebody you need to stop. This is somebody you need to keep in the local church, give him another season to grow. So God has given the, response, the, the local church, the responsibility and privilege of raising up the next generation of missionaries. The church identifies those who are on track to qualify for church eldership. The church oversees further steps in, in, in making sure these guys get more training. I'm trying to say that the local church should be involved in every step along the way. From that raised hand to that competent gospel worker. And now I want to shift the, little, uh, the focus a little bit on training, but the local church is still very much part of it. Um, but I don't know if you guys have heard this saying, but in mission mobilization, a lot of times there's a familiar saying that goes, God does not want your ability. He wants your, what, availability. God, does, God is not interested in your ability. God is interested in your availability. Now, as somebody who's in Asia, who is still receiving, whose region, we still need you guys to send missionaries. I don't really, I can't really speak for God, but, but we kind of want your ability. Um, that, 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 that's, um. Guys, we all know, I think we all understand what we're trying to say when we, when we use that line. God is interested in your availability. He's, he doesn't, he's not interested in your ability. But, 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 but what, what we're trying to say is, is God could use anybody. He could use a murderer. He could use an adulterer. He could use a fisherman, a tax collector to fulfill his purposes. What we're trying to say is do not love this world and anything in this world in 1 John 2.15. 
or no soldiers gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. 2 Timothy 2.4. What we're trying to say is make your life available to God. Set down your dreams, your plans, be available. That's what we're trying to say. But what we're not trying to say or what we should not say is ability doesn't matter. Availability and ability are never meant to be pitted against each other. I needed my Uber driver's driving ability and his driver's license this morning to get to, um, to, get to the church. A dude who's free but can't drive is not going to help me to get here. We need ability to actually accomplish something that God has entrusted to us. What we're not trying to say is ability doesn't matter. And if we were to look at the ability needed for a competent gospel worker, um, we need to be looking both for availability and ability. But when we want to put focus on ability... One of the first one, the primary ability that we need to look for is in our missionary candidates is their ability to communicate and defend the truth. Their ability to communicate and defend the truth. It's not if they're a people person. It's not if how did they do in their last cross-cultural missions short-term trip. It's not if they like outdoor camping or if they could survive a tribal, if, if they like ethnic food, it, it's none of that. The ability that we're looking for is, does he have the ability, does the candidate have the ability to defend and to communicate the gospel? In the, in the pastoral epistles, when Paul wrote letters to the two young shepherds, to uh, Timothy and Titus, his primary concern was on the communication and the preservation of sound doctrines. And this is equally applicable to our missionary candidates today. Can they teach and defend the gospel? Do they hold on to a set of non-negotiable doctrines that will stand the test of time and have the ability to communicate and to teach it to the first generation church? In 1 Timothy 4, 6, Paul said, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine you have followed. Paul is essentially saying to Timothy, Having been taught in sound doctrine, now go and teach them. That's the job of a missionary as well. In 2 Timothy 1, 13, Now, what you heard from me, keep us the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Timothy heard or learned sound teaching. See the word that Paul used here? The pattern of sound teaching. When we talk about a pattern, we're talking about something that's repeated. There is a set of non-negotiable doctrine that Paul is charging Timothy to keep and to teach. And in Titus 1.9, Paul says, He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Now, having been taught, these two young shepherds, they are put to charge to protect the church, 
to defend it. And we all remember what Paul said to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20. That passage has been cited several times in the past two days. Um, but it would benefit us much. Uh, let me read it again from verse 28 to 31. This is what Paul said to the elders. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Guys, the ability for missionaries to be trained in good doctrine and then to teach and then to defend it, that's the mark of a competent gospel worker. And where does one get trained, though? The next question is, where does one get trained in sound doctrine? We need to go, we need to go right back to the local church, guys. We need to go right back to the local church. The context that I'm serving in right now in Asia, we're dealing with this false dichotomy that says church is where you do Christian life. But if you want theology, that's what you go. That's what seminaries are for. That's the context in Asia. And that's hurting the Asian missionary candidates and their readiness to actually serve on the field. Now, I'm not saying seminaries are bad. I went to one. But sound doctrine starts and ends in the local church. So, pastors, the fulfillment of the Great Commission depends on you teaching and preaching the gospel faithfully in the local church. Our brother, uh, Harsha Singh, this morning said what? The careful gospel leads to careful church and careful church leads to careful missionaries. And when I say careful missionaries, I'm not talking about timid uh, missionaries. I'm talking about missionaries, God's ambassadors who can correctly handle the word of God. Careful gospel leads to careful church, leads to careful missionaries. Make your young people know what the gospel is. Make them fall in love with the gospel. Teach them what the gospel is and teach them what the gospel is not. To the missionary candidate, to the missionary candidate, he or she needs to know what the gospel is and what the gospel is not. And it cannot be a set of steps to follow or, or a simplified methodology or strategy. The gospel cannot be reduced to a step of questions that you pop or in a Bible study or a, a, a reduced presentation. Biblical discipleship is rooted in the gospel and all the transformation that comes from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And it depends on us believing and standing on the true gospel and not on mere obedience to moralistic commands in the Bible. A brother from India this morning highlighted, sometimes gospel communication takes on a different form uh, overseas. Um, my wife and I will be uh, celebrating our 20th uh, anniversary in about three weeks. And uh, we started dating 22 years ago. And um, imagine though, uh, 22 years ago, imagine at that time, if I said to myself, what is the least 
certain amount of information that I need to share with Gail so that she will say yes to me when I propose. <laughs> if that was my mindset, I would, not be, I, I, I would not have a very strong marriage right now. Guys, if I gather a group of 20 bachelors and tell them, hey, you know what? The traditional way of courtship is too long. Who likes traditional anyways? I'm going to train you guys to find your wife in the shortest time, um, amount of time possible. This is the set of questions that you need to pop when you want to get your first date. And now there's another set of questions after you get your first date. Here's another set of questions to get that lady to say yes to you. And you know what? After you guys tie the knot, instead of working on your marriage, I want you to gather 20 other bachelors and train them how to do this. So that in three years' time, we're going to have a marriage explosion, a family of movements. <laughs> guys, th th this is, you guys, what, what I just described may sound ridiculous. But a lot of times, many times, this is how our missionaries are getting trained today. What's the least amount of time? Uh, what's the least amount of information that we can communicate or we should give to the nation just so that they will say yes. What I described, um, that process of courtship kills love. But that's okay. It's, it's just Gail and I. That, 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 that's not the end of the world. But when we apply the same methodology to the gospel, it kills more than just my marriage. It kills the gospel. It kills life. Guys, out of all the ability, all the preparation, be saturated with the gospel. Competent gospel workers need to be able to teach and defend the gospel. Okay. Now, there are other areas of training needed. Other areas of training needed. Uh, language. I, I gave a uh, workshop on this yesterday, so I won't uh, go on too much. Um, our context today is a little different than the context that Paul had to face. A lot of times our graduates have to uh, learn two or three additional languages just so that they could get to a place where they could share the gospel on the worldview level in the receiver's heart language. So being a cross-cultural uh, cross gospel worker needs to have some linguistic training simply because that's, that's like push-up or uh, three-mile runs to basic uh, fitness. Um, it doesn't matter how good a theological bank you have in your brain. If you can get it out in the local language, they will not be able to understand it. Uh, language fluency is absolutely necessary for gospel clarity. Again, we've, I've said it many times, many radio staff said it many times, we don't love language study. Man, those, I had to learn two more languages after I was 33. Those were difficult, tough, tough years of my life. But a market level or tourist level language, um, fluency level, is not going to be able to defend and communicate the gospel. What Paul has entrusted to us, we need adult level fluency. Adult level fluency. A recent conversation I had with... Um, with the missions leader. Uh, this leader said to me, Radius, you guys place too much emphasis on human ability. 
You cannot expect a missionary to learn language to full adult fluency. You guys need to learn how to trust the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit leads you to share the gospel with someone in six months in a vision or in a dream, the Holy Spirit will make the message itself clear. This is a real conversation. Equipping the next generation of missionaries with linguistic abilities, programs, mock languages, giving them actual tools. In some circles, it's seen as you guys don't trust the Holy Spirit. You guys do not trust the Holy Spirit. But you guys know this is not about ability or emphasis, overemphasis on ability. This is not about what the Holy Spirit can or cannot do. It doesn't matter how much the gospel worker knows the gospel in his own language. But without adult level fluency, he simply cannot communicate it. And this opens up doors to miscommunication of the most important message in the world. And possibly syncretism that sends people thinking that they're Christians straight to hell. Straight to hell. Now, when we, when we talk about language learning, we also have to talk about culture learning. Another area of training needed for a competent gospel worker is in the area of culture fluency. Do they understand the local culture enough before gospel communication? And by culture, I don't mean what, do, what, what they eat or what they drink or what they dress. I'm not talking about that level of culture. I mean their deep level worldview of how they see the world. When we first went to New Guinea, our islanders, some of them thought we were their dead ancestor spirits returning to give them material goods. A tribal person said to me, Wayne, you're not us. When you see this big rock, you just see a rock. But man, I see a spirit that I need to talk to every day to make sure my day goes okay. But, and these, these aren't things that they told me the first day. This is after I have acquired a high level of language and culture fluency that they actually open up their worldview to share that with me. Missionaries need to be trained on how to observe, analyze, and ultimately share the gospel with proper, proper contextualization. Proverbs 13, oh, sorry, 18.13 says, If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. Let me read that again. If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. Can your missionary observe intentionally, listen carefully, investigate the conflicting worldviews that's often exhibiting inside these people? The reason why this is important, understanding their worldview is in most parts of the world, Getting somebody to say yes, agreeing to the gospel isn't that hard. But is that agreeing effectual um, salvation? Or are they just placing Jesus in their realm or shrine of many other gods? In order to discern this, the missionary needs a deep level of worldview, culture, understanding. Several months ago, I, wasn't, uh, I was speaking to an American expat. I don't think he was a believer, but I was, um, I was um, speaking with a, a, an expat, American expat living in Taiwan. He speaks fluent Mandarin because he grew up there. Uh, he, sp he speaks fluent Mandarin, and he runs a consul consultant um, company. 
And his company provides services for foreign, Western, U.S., European companies that want to send their employees to Asia. So his company offers them culture uh, classes, um, preparation classes for these upper management levels uh, from big, big companies um, in the West uh, moving to Asia. And, and we started chatting. As soon as he found out that, that I was training Asian missionaries to go, go overseas, he asked me right away. He said, Do, does your program include culture and worldview training? And I said, yeah. And so he got excited. I got excited. We started chatting. We started exchanging resources, book list, and, and um, a, a lot of resources. And this is what he said to me. He said, Wayne, all the major companies in the West understand this now, that before sending their U.S.-based employees overseas, they must be trained in culture. And he said, the reason is not that they will survive overseas. The reason is not just so that they can live in Hong Kong or China or Taiwan. The, the, the reason is not living for, for living's sake. The reason is... All these employees, they're going overseas. They're management level, guys. They need to lead local teams. He said without understanding the cultural nuances, the worldview level of their, I mean, they all speak company level English. But he said without a true understanding of the culture, all these U.S.-based employees, upper management guys, they cannot effectively lead their project teams. And this hurts their bottom line. This hurts their evaluations even, company evaluations even. This guy has lived in Taiwan for many, many years, and he's, friend with, he's friends with a lot of missionaries. He has seen them come and go. And he said, Wayne, you got to make sure when you train these Asian missionaries, do not skip this part of training because you guys have a far more complex message to share with the rest of the world. Guys, a lot of times within the mission circle, we see the opposite. We put much emphasis on availability and we feel like it's unspiritual to talk about ability. Instead of committing to rigorous training and vetting and non-negotiable competence, competency level for the sake of gospel clarity, we resort to using translators. We want to pop in a movie and get decisions within two hours. We stick to English Bible studies in coffee shops. Guys, none of these things are bad. I'm not saying stop doing them. But that's what short-term missions teams do. Churches, if you're sending out long-term career missionaries, a missionary without language and culture fluency is basically a short-term mission team that never leaves. It's just somebody who's just staying there for a very long time but keep on using the same methods. So after, guys, think about this. If secular companies are holding their employees to this standard, we as the church cannot afford to expect anything less. After faithfulness to the church, the ability to teach and defend the gospel, culture and language training, let's move on to the next stage. Now, after the raising of hands, after that season in the local church, getting vetted, growing, living together with the local church, after receiving some of these specific trainings, there will come a day where the church will lay you know, our hands on that candidate or on that family, and we, 
drive them to the airport and we send them away. But that moment of sending them away, that moment of putting them on that one-way flight to somewhere does not end the shaping and the molding of a competent gospel worker. Um, for, a 20, for a competent worker, that training, that shaping continue, continues, continues. I want to focus on, I want to focus on the first few years on the field, the shaping of that competent gospel worker continues in that crucial first couple years on the field. Uh, guys, pers- um, I didn't speak a word of English before I was 14. I was born in Taiwan. My family immigrated to Canada when I was 14. I remember vividly. Our family landed in Vancouver on the West Coast on August 28th. Whole family. I was the young. I was the oldest kid. Was going into the ninth grade. And my father left for Asia again on September 2nd. And on September 3rd, I was put in to the biggest, largest public high school in our entire province without a single word of English. Now, talking about a, a um, I, I don't even want to use the word culture shock. It was a sensory and emotional overload. I was absolutely clueless in language and culture. I mean, I was, I was expected to play hockey in my PE class. I've never seen snow. I mean, just like, like <laughs> give me a little, give me at least one season. I, 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 I mean, you know, but, 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 but that was, you know, that, you know, I was thrown into a cross-cultural context like that as a 14-year-old. But what I went through in high school is what a lot of, what, what all missionaries will have to go through, except it's 10 times worse. It's 10 times worse for missionaries. You know why? Because when I was 14, I had myself to look after. But for a missionary family, or even for singles, for, I I mean, we just have a lot more relationships. We have a lot more needs uh, to look after. But, But so those first few years on the field, that's crucial in the shaping of a competent gospel worker. In Acts 22, when Paul was arrested, we don't have time to turn to the passage, but, but when Paul was arrested uh, in Jerusalem and was brought before an angry mob, he had a, a get-out-of-jail card, card, didn't he? He pulled out what? His passport. Where he says, I am a Roman citizen. I'm a Roman citizen. Um, unfortunately, um, that same get-out-of-jail card is not available to most missionaries today. A lot of times, missionaries have to actually establish a legit, let me put the emphasis on legit identity and business um, um, in the country that they're serving. And that's starting a business in our own uh, context is stressful enough. Try to do that in another context. Uh, That's added stress. Uh, When we talk about parenting and marriage, uh, can they endure high stress um, living. Um, Brad talked about it this morning. Um, churches. Um, I was a missionary consultant. I was missionary consultant in my latter years on the field. And a lot of time I had to deal with missionaries with issues. And um, our, my, our, the consultant's first reaction would be calling um, our headquarter back in the U.S., um, our agency headquarter, 
and telling them, hey, if you guys saw issues in these guys' lives, why did you send them to us in the first place? Now, if I was on the organizational side, like on this side of the pond, who should I call? I actually should call the local church. That, hey, if you guys were seeing this in the local church, like, why didn't you stop them? Like, why did you send them through to us? Guys, when, we, when it comes to the shaping and molding of a competent gospel worker, it goes back to the local church where we do life on life. It is up to the church leadership and pastors and elders to do proper vetting so that the church could fully stand before their candidates. The early years, the early days, early days, um, another formative season. This will be my last point. Another formative season, an early decision that every missionary needs to make when they arrive on the field is those early days when, when you just, you've just landed. Your suitcases are still on the floor. You're looking at your first rental housing. You're new in that neighborhood and nobody knows who you are. And then you have to answer this question. Can the missionary fight the urge to build up a castle for himself first before doing ministry? Those early days are scary, guys. That first day for me in high school, that was scary. That first day on the field, traffic patterns are different, smells are different, people talk louder. I mean, nothing has a price tag. Everybody's staring at you. You know, nada in the language. And yes, a lot of times missionaries, when they get to the field, they have other missionaries from their home countries uh, to receive them. But I'm talking about on the heart level, the gospel worker must decide, am I going to cling to what's familiar to me or am I going to venture out to the community? That's an early, early decision. It's not seen, it's not easily observable on the outside. But when you're in that context, you have to decide, am I going to cling to what's familiar, familiar to me? Or am I going to actually face my fear and step out into the community? There's a TGI Friday in my town in Taiwan. And uh, it, it's been there for a long time. It was the first... Um, American restaurant uh, in my town, I think 30 years ago, and, and it's still standing. And they have an English menu. They have a, all, the, all the waiting staff, they all speak English. And the joke goes, the joke goes that if you want to hear gospel presentation, uh, that's where you want to go. Because that's where all the missionaries are. So, um, they are good missionaries that made that decision early on. You know what? That looks really good. That reminds me of home. But for the sake of becoming a competent gospel communicator, I'm going the other direction. Man, there's nothing wrong with going to TGI Friday and grabbing a good burger. That's, that tendency is completely understandable. We all tend to cling on to what's familiar to us. On the mission field, we want to set up our house as close, you know, as as closest to our, our last house before going to the field. We want to buy that AC unit first. Uh, we want to make sure uh, we can find food uh, for our pantry that's from home. I don't know, like Asian, Asian missionaries tend to look for soy sauce. I don't know what you guys look for. I, I, 
olive oil maybe i don't know like 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 i'm just saying that that tendency is understandable that tendency to search for everything that reminds us of home is understandable but that does not mean we should do it those early days initial days are huge all the eyes are on you you are at your most vulnerable time your most vulnerable season can you fight off the urge to build up a castle for yourself but instead ask your neighbor where the market is in your broken arabic or memorize mandarin ask your neighbor you know what like we want to go to a restaurant like what's a good local food you're new that's what people expect you to ask that's natural What's unnatural is for your neighbor to see you closing your door, setting up everything, receiving packages every day, and then three months later, open up your door and say, hey, I'm ready to know you guys now. That's unnatural. Do not waste that early season. Churches, tell your missionaries, tell your missionaries, fight off that early, early urge of, of clinging to everything that reminds us of home. Guys, lastly, 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 I'm, I still got four minutes and 52 seconds. This may sound redundant, but lastly, a competent gospel worker should strive to communicate the gospel and plan churches biblically. And you go, wait a minute, Wayne, you, 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 you said that like 50 times. But there's a flip side of what I just said. A competent gospel worker should have a healthy dose of fear of not being faithful to the gospel and the church. Let me say that again. A competent gospel worker should have a healthy dose of fear of not being faithful to the gospel and to the church. Please allow me to say this. It seems to me today that many missionaries are more afraid of being labeled as Western or traditional than non-biblical. And this cannot be. Going back to Paul's charge to Timothy and Titus on teaching and defending sound doctrine. Planting churches with identifiable leadership is not Western or traditional. It is biblical. Taking on the mandated role as a teacher is not paternalistic or colonial. It is biblical. The absolute need for repentance is not a Western guilt-based social idea. It is biblical. Telling the unreached nations that there is a set of non-negotiable doctrine that they need to understand cognitively and then put their faith through the help of the Holy Spirit supernaturally on Jesus as the only way to be reconciled to God is not Western or traditional. It is biblical. A competent gospel worker must, be, must strive to be faithful to the gospel in the church in salvation, in the theology of the church. And to do otherwise, to be otherwise, we would be incompetent and unbiblical. Guys, when it comes to the Great Commission, our goal is not to send. 
our goal is to finish, to finish by planting biblical churches among the unreached language groups. How do we get from here to there? Let's start from our local churches. Start training the next generation of competent gospel workers. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come humbly before you. Our only prayer is that we will be faithful to the whole gospel. We will be faithful to the church. We will be faithful to the finish. With your power, help us to do that. We thank you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.